Hello, ladies. Hello and welcome to Women in the Word. It is so good to see all of your beautiful, smiling faces out there. And I want to say welcome to South Campus. Thank you for joining us and welcome to all of you who are on the internet, uh, wherever you are. I am Deb Haygood. I'm part of the Women in the Word teaching team and it is a great joy and a great honor to be here with all of you today studying God's Word together. Thank you so much for being a part of this study. And I can't think of a better way to start off 2022 than studying God's words. And I have such great hopes for 2022, but I think we've learned we never know how things are going to turn out. But we do know the one who never changes, the one who never leaves us, the one who loves us with an overwhelming, great, lavish love, and that is our Lord Jesus Christ. And my hope is in him and God's words one of the best way to see and hear and experience him to experience God and so that's what we are going to do this year starting with our study in first Samuel found in the Old Testament now I read a story over the holidays about the Old Testament uh, let me say I hope your holidays were filled with love and laughter seems got kind of a long time ago we're back. Uh, over the holidays, I read this story, and it was about a New Testament professor who was talking to his son about the Old Testament. And his wise son said, I think you mean the Gold Testament, because there is treasure in there. And I thought, how true, so true. There is treasure in the Old Testament, treasure there for each one of us. Now, treasure is God's wisdom. It's God's knowledge and his truth. And sometimes it's right out in plain sight. Sometimes we have to search for it, kind of dig down, be patient. In fact, Proverbs 2, on your sheet of extra verses, it tells us this in verse 3. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Sometimes we have to search for it like treasure. And that made me think of a story about my son, Ben. He loves all things nature. He loves to find things and identify them and understand them. And one of his interests right now is seashells. So whenever we're at the beach, he's looking for seashells. About a year and a half ago, my family, my, all my kids and grandkids and my husband, we all went to the panhandle of Florida and we stayed right on the beach for a week. And so every day we're out to the beach, we're in the ocean, we're walking up and down it, and you could see my son, he would be intensely looking for shells. One in particular, and that is called the Scotch Bonnet. Now, he knew it was at this beach, so he was intensely looking for it. And one day, as we walked down um, about a mile to the National Seashore, there was an older lady, and she had lived there forever. And she was telling my son that if you go to this certain area, and she kind of walks over, and she points to it, and she says, if you come here at low tide, you might find a Scotch Bonnet. So he looks up on his phone, when's it going to be light and um, low tide, and he finds out 6 o'clock the next morning. So he wakes up early, 5.30, he's out the door. None of us went with him. <laughs> By himself, he's searching for his treasure. So he gets up, 5.30, goes down to this place, and after a while, he comes back, and he has a scotch bonnet. He looked and looked and searched and found his treasure. Now, I have a picture of that. We might want to put it up. I actually have two pictures. This is a scotch bonnet. Now, before you get too excited, ladies, um, for $3, you can have one for, from Etsy. So... <laughs> 
But he found this treasure, and we are going to find treasure as we study 1 Samuel together and search and experience and understand God's wisdom and truth. Now, it doesn't matter if you've studied the Bible for 50 years or as this is your very first time ever to be at a Bible study. The Holy Spirit can give us insight and wisdom. Now, we have some study questions for you, those packets, and if you do those, it helps you to go through the scriptures, and then you discuss them in your small group. And then every week, a big different teacher will be up here um, giving you some additional insights. So let's begin with some background information on 1 Samuel. This book is very exciting. It is super interesting and extremely relevant. Even though it was written 3,000 years ago, the feelings and the emotions and the decisions and the stories that go on, you're going to see yourself somewhere in that story. You're going to find yourself in it. First Samuel continues God's story of love and salvation for mankind. That is what the Bible is. It's God's story, his story of his loving, gracious plan to bring a Savior into the world to die for sinners, you and me, that we might trust in him and have eternal relationship with Jesus. And his plan begins in the very first book of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1, where he God creates the whole universe and everything in it, including human beings. The first two are Adam and Eve. And they have this intimate relationship with God. They walk with him. And then one day they think they're going to do their own thing. They're going to disobey and rebel against God and sin enters the world. But we see God's plan in Genesis 3.15, a reference to Jesus, the one who would come from Eve and defeat sin and Satan. It's God's promise of hope. God's story continues, and I want to just go over just a few high points that I think will give us some context as we look at 1 Samuel. So in Genesis 12, God calls Abraham to follow him, and Abraham obeys. And so God promises him many descendants, land for those descendants to live in, specific land, and blessing. He's going to bless Abraham and his descendants. And from Abraham will come a blessing for the whole world. Once again, a reference to Jesus Christ, the greatest blessing to the whole world. So God builds his people, a nation from Abraham's grandson, Jacob, and Jacob's 12 sons and their families. And they go to Egypt because there's a famine in the land. And while they're there, over time, they become enslaved by Pharaoh. 400 years they are in slavery, but during that time, they grow and they multiply until Israel becomes 2 million, maybe even more. They call out to God. They say, deliver us, save us from this slavery. And Exodus opens up. God sends Moses to save his people. So after 10 dramatic plagues, um, Pharaoh is convinced to let God's people go, and Moses leads them out of Egypt across the Red Sea, and to Mount Sinai. And it's very important, Mount Sinai, important thing happens there. God gives them the law. Now, the law was good. It was for their benefit. It was to bless them. It was laws about how to handle food and other things so that they would stay well and not get uh, diseases. It was about relationships and how to handle those so that they would be kept safe. And most importantly, instructions on how to worship God. God, they called him Yahweh. It was the name for their personal loving God of Israel. 
The law was good. It was to bless them. And as other nations saw God blessing them and um, protecting them and providing for the Israelites, and the Israelites worshiping and trusting God, then these other nations would come and want to worship God as well. But... Israel sometimes had trouble trusting God. And so we see that when they get to the edge of that land God promised to Abraham and his descendants, um, they're afraid. They don't trust God to go and give them victory over the enemies in the land. And so they refuse to go in. And God says, okay, then wander in the wilderness until you've died. And as your children grow up, they will be the ones to enter into the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. And that's what happened. And some of you might have been in our study of Joshua. It was uh, about a year and a half ago. And there we saw Joshua. He was um, obeying and following God. And God gave them victory in the land. And they conquered it. They divided it up among the people of the 12 tribes. And they settled in the land. It was kind of a shining moment for Israel. Kind of the high point in their history as they worshiped God and they listened to their leader, Joshua. But time passes and Joshua dies and that first generation that had settled the land dies and their children come up and we read that they forget about God. This is the book of um, Judges and we studied that era of Judges last summer. Some of you might have been in that and we found that it was a very dark time in Israel's history. This second generation of Israelites, they have forgotten about God. They've abandoned him. Look at Judges 2, verse 11 on your verse sheet. And we read, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals, that's foreign gods, and they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. So they did evil in the sight of the Lord. They worshiped foreign, pagan gods, handmade gods that weren't even gods at all. And life does not go well for them. But God's grace abounds in the midst of Israel's disobedience. Look at Judges 2.16. It says, Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Now, judges were um, specific people that God chose, men and women, and they were empowered by God to do something to save the people. Usually it was to go into battle and save them from their oppressor. They would know a time of peace, they would worship God, but very quickly they fell away from God, and the same thing would happen. They would be oppressed by the enemy, God would raise up a judge, go in to save them, and they would worship God for a short time. Very short time. This cycle repeats all through the book of Judges. It is so sad. And the last verse of Judges really sums up the whole book. I'm going to read it to you. It's chapter 21, verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. They all did whatever they wanted to, whatever evil thing they wanted to. And when we see there, there's no king in Israel, that's kind of a foreshadowing of what is to come in the book of 1 Samuel, because that is where we are now. The book of first, in 1 Samuel, God's story continues, God's gracious plan to bring a savior into the world, Jesus, our king of kings, his plan goes forward. And so we're gonna see in 1 Samuel, God establishing a monarchy 
in Israel, God's people under an earthly king. And this is the message of 1 Samuel. This is the purpose of 1 Samuel. And God tells his story with stories, stories of real people. And we all love stories. We love it. We love to tell our stories to other people. That's how they get to know us, and we listen to them. Hopefully, you talked, told some stories around your small groups today. We're going to see these stories, and this is also how we get to know God, because we're going to see him moving and working all through 1 Samuel. These stories are fun, and they're exciting. They're also tragic and interesting, sometimes joyful, sometimes tense. We're going to be on the edge of our seats, and that is what makes 1 Samuel absolutely wonderful. You're going to love the study of this book. And we can divide up the book, um, a simple outline around three main people. Their lives are interwoven. And the first one is Samuel. He is the first judge and the last prophet, and that's chapters 1 through 8. And then we have Saul. He's the first king of Israel, chapters 9 through 15. And then David, the second king of Israel and the greatest king of Israel. That's chapters 16 through 31. And then 2 Samuel, which we'll study at a later time, it is all about David's reign on the throne in Israel. So that's why we're calling 1 Samuel David's early years. He's anointed, but he doesn't take the throne until 2 Samuel. We also see some pretty interesting women in here as well. We're going to see Hannah today. We're going to talk about Abigail in a few weeks and Michael, Saul's daughter. Um, that's just a few. And I also want to mention a few themes. So number one, God never abandons his people. We're going to see that clearly. He brings hope, and we're going to see great hope in the book of 1 Samuel. Also, second theme, God is sovereign. His purposes and plans go forward. God will accomplish his purposes either by ruling through obedient men and women who cooperate with this plan or by overruling sinful, rebellious individuals. His plan, his purposes go forward. Third theme, sin has devastating effects, both individually and corporately. Our sin affects others, and we're going to see that in the stories. And we all know that, but I think there's something about seeing some of these people, some of these decisions, um, what they do. We're going to resonate with that. And I think God's word will change us. And then fourth, obedience to God is essential for success. Um, we're going to see obedience in every chapter, and we're going to talk about it in every lesson. So these are just a few of the themes. Um, there's others, but I want you to be looking for these as we study for Samuel. I want you to find treasure in this Gold Testament book. So let's open up now to 1 Samuel. We're going to look at chapter 1. And here we're going to look at Samuel. He is an amazing man of God. I sometimes forget how amazing. Samuel was not only the last judge, he was also a priest and a prophet. He anoints the first two kings. And so God uses Samuel as a bridge from the era of judges to the monarchy in Israel. He is the spiritual light in these dark days of Israel. He gives spiritual leadership throughout his life because he trusts God he listens to God, and he obeys God with his whole heart. 
And his story begins before his birth with the prayers of his godly mother, Hannah. Now, last summer, as we studied the era of Judges, Shelley Davis taught the last lesson, and it was on Samuel. It was excellent. You might want to go back and listen to it. But since some of you have missed that lesson, I'm going to review a few important points um, from chapters 1 through 8 about Samuel. And then we're going to take a look at Saul in chapter 9. So, that's a bit. So let's get started. Today, as you looked at your questions in your small group, we read in chapter one that uh, Hannah was a godly woman, yet she is very sad and distressed because she has no children. So when she goes to Shiloh with her husband and his other wife, now there's a source of distress, um, she pours out her heart to God. Now, Shiloh, that is where the Ark of the Covenant is, that's where the sanctuary of God is, and that is where Eli, the high priest, lives. And so let's look at verses 19 through 20, see what happens. They rose early in the morning, and they worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her, and in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. So God answers Hannah's prayer with a son, and she names him Samuel, which means God hears. Now, when Samuel's a little older, maybe about three to five, she takes him back to Shiloh to live with um, Eli. She's keeping the vow that she made to the Lord. She said she would give this child to the Lord all the days of his life. So she takes him to Eli. She dedicates Samuel to the Lord. And in chapter two, we see she praises God. What a beautiful prayer of praise. And we See that she knows God because she talks about God's salvation, God's knowledge, God's holiness, that he is a firm and solid foundation. What beautiful truths Hannah leaves with her son, Samuel. And even though Eli's sons are worthless, godless, immoral men, Samuel serves God under the care of Eli. Look at that in verse 26 of chapter 2. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow, both in stature and in favor with the Lord, and also with man. And that we come to chapter 3. Let's look over there. And here we're going to see that God calls Samuel. He's probably about 13 years old at this time. And verse 1 tells us this. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There were no frequent visions. This is telling us that it was a time of spiritual activity. The people had turned away from God. We've just been talking about that. And even Eli, the high priest, is lacking in spiritual leadership. And yet, the Lord calls Samuel, who at first doesn't recognize his voice. And you know this story, God says, Samuel, Samuel, and Samuel jumps up and he goes into Eli and he goes, yes, Lord, what, you called me? And Eli says, I didn't call you, go back to bed. And so Samuel does, and it takes three times before Eli, he's a little spiritually dull, gets the picture here, this is the Lord, and so he says, Samuel, next time they call, he calls your name, say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. Samuel does this, and God goes on to tell Samuel his first prophecy. Now, I love this story of Samuel. I love this because it reminds me of my daughter, Rachel, when she was three years old. 
She was supposed to be taking a nap, and I heard something going on in her room, so as I walked down the hall, I stopped outside her door, because I could hear her talking, and so I listened, and she's going, Samuel, Samuel. I'm listening, Lord. Samuel, Samuel, I hear you, Lord. She was retelling the story that she had learned in Sunday school at Christ Chapel. Ladies, I can't tell you how grateful I am for Christ Chapel. They tell the children, even the very little ones, true stories from the Bible. Get your kids there as fast as you can. I'm so grateful for that. So, this is what happens. God goes on to tell Samuel his first prophecy. And that prophecy is Eli's house was to be punished forever because his sons were blaspheming God and Eli did nothing to stop them. Verses 19 and 20 of chapter 3 tell us this. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. So a prophet was one who spoke to the people God's words, and sometimes those words predicted future events. And a test of a true prophet is if the prophecy comes to pass, if it's true. And in chapter 4, we're going to see Samuel's prophecy about the house of Eli take place. Now, chapters 4, 5, and 6, we don't have time to read all those. They are interesting chapters, so go back and read them. They're dealing with the Ark of the Covenant, and it's a great story about God's sovereign power over all. Overall, now you remember the Ark of the Covenant. Um, it was the most sacred of all the furnishings in the temple. God's sanctuary. It was a gold-covered box that held the Ten Commandments, and on the top, the lid was called the mercy seat, and it represented fellowship with God. Now, we even talked about the Ark of the Covenant last semester in the book of Hebrews. The Ark symbolized God's presence in the midst of his people. So in chapter 4, the Philistines are defeating Israel in battle. And so those military leaders, they decide, hey, let's go to Shiloh and get the Ark of the Covenant and bring it into battle, and God will save us. And so that's what they do. They go to Shiloh. There's Eli's sons in the Ark, and they get it, and they all go back into battle. There were instructions about how to move the ark and how to care for the ark and who was to touch it. Eli's sons should have known that. But they don't follow any of these instructions. These men are not following God. They don't have faith in God. They haven't even asked God if they should do this. Instead, they take this ark into battle as a lucky charm, as a good luck charm. And God is not pleased with this attitude. And so the Israelites are defeated by the Philistines, and they capture the Ark of the Covenant. Also, Eli's two sons die in the battle. And when Eli hears that the Ark of the Covenant has been captured, he, in grief and shock, falls over backwards, breaks his neck, and he too dies. Samuel's prophecy has come to pass. By the way, ladies, this is the first time the Ark was ever in enemy hands, and it does not go well for the Philistines. They bring it back, just briefly, this story, they bring it back to one of the Philistine cities, Ashdod, and they put it into the temple where their big uh, statue of their god is, huge, giant statue of their god. Next morning they wake up, the statue has fallen over, face down, in front of the Ark of the Covenant. 
They're a little bit afraid, but they put the uh, statue back up. Next morning, same thing, fallen down, face down in front of the ark, and this time the head and the hands have broken off of the statue. At the same time, a plague is going through their city. People are getting ill and dying, and they think, whoa, we have got to get the ark out of here. So they take it to another Philistine city. Same thing happens. Um, people get the plague. They die. They take it to a third city and then to a fourth city. And after seven months of this, they realize the hand of God is heavy upon us. They realize this is God, but they don't fall down before him. They don't worship him. They come up with a plan. Let's take the ark back to Israel. And so that is what they do. It's a pretty interesting story there, but the bottom line, the ark gets back to Israel and ends up in a town called Kiriath Jerim. And that brings us to the end of chapter 6. And uh, chapter 7 opens up, 20 years um, have passed with the ark back in Israel, and the people are mourning, they're lamenting after God, they realize they need to turn back to God. And here we're going to clearly see Samuel's role as judge, the spiritual leader over Israel. Look at verse 7-3. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Samuel is totally committed to God. He calls the people to follow God only, and they do. And then, as the Philistines, they see what's going on here, and they think, hey, we better go to battle. As they move in, the Israelites uh, become afraid, and they ask Samuel to cry out to God on their behalf. And he does. He intercedes for Israel, and God answers. And here, in this middle part of chapter 7, we see um, the Israelites, through the powerful work of God defeating the Philistines. Some powerful thunder and sound. The Philistines are defeated. Samuel, totally committed to God. He's faithful. He follows God all his life, and he loves God and God's people, and he intercedes. He cries out to God on their behalf all of his life. Look down at verse 15. It says, Samuel judged Israel. That means led Israel. It sees lead, the leader of Israel all the days of his life. And he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mitzpah. And he judged Israel in all these places. And then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there. And there also he judged Israel. And he built there an altar to the Lord. I have a map that we might want to put up. You guys have this, a hard copy, in your question packet. But um, this is a map that kind of shows all those uh, cities kind of clustered together. And if you look at it, you'll see Ramah. That's the city where Samuel lives. And as we go through 1 Samuel, you'll see lots of towns and cities, and most of them are on this map. So if you care about maps and you care about where these people are, you've got one in your question packet to look at. So, this brings us to chapter 8. And chapter 8 is a pivotal chapter in 1 Samuel. It's a turning point in God's story. Look at 8, verse 1. 
When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. Now, about 30 years have passed from the end of chapter 7 to this beginning of chapter 8, and Samuel has become old. Okay, so he's about 70 years old. Seriously, ladies, not that old. But let's see what happens. Verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together, and they came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. So a delegation of leaders come to Samuel. Now probably this is the younger people, the next generation after that big battle was won, um, Israel over the Philistines more than 30 years before that. And so they see that Samuel's getting older, his sons are not very godly, and they think, hey, great time to ask for a king so we can be like other nations. And Samuel is crushed he is crushed. His people are rejecting his leadership, and they're rejecting God as their king. So Samuel does what he does best. He talks to God. He goes to God in his distress, kind of reminds us of his mother, Hannah. And God answers. In verse 7, we see God saying to Samuel, they are not rejecting you, Samuel. They are rejecting me as their king. So give them an earthly king. Give them what they want, but let them know, warn them how the kings, their surrounding kings, they do not make it easy on their people. They bring hardship and misery. So we see in those verses that come up, 10 through 18, Samuel warns them this is what it's like to be under a king, but let's see what they say in verse 19. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us, and, notice this, very important, that he will go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel obeys God even when he is rejected by Israel as they ask for a king. Now, ladies, wanting a king wasn't the sin. Israel's sin was that they asked for a king to fight their battles. They refused to believe that the Lord would give them victory if they trusted in him. Instead of humble faith in the power and the protection of the Lord God Almighty, Yahweh, they would rather rely on the strength of a man, of a human being. They would rather place their faith and trust in an earthly king, not in God. Now, God's plan for Israel eventually was a monarchy, a human king over Israel. And we see that way back on your verse sheet. Look at Genesis 17, 6. God is talking to Abraham, and he says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And then in Genesis 49, 10, this is Jacob, and he's dying, and he gives a blessing to his 12 sons. And in verse 10, he's blessing his fourth son, Judah, and he says this, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. The king would come from the tribe of Judah, the lineage of Judah, Abraham's great grandson, David, was from the tribe of Judah. 
I think maybe David was to be the first king. And then Jesus would one day descend from his line. God sends Jesus to earth. Jesus, fully God and fully man, comes from Mary. Mary, her descendants, they go back to King David. She is from the tribe of Judah. On your verse sheet, I've got Luke 1.32. This is the angel telling this to Mary. She's going to have this son, and it says, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Jesus, the King of kings, is going to come from the tribe of Judah. And we even have rules in, um, about the kings. We find those in Deuteronomy chapter 17. There's about six uh, verses, but I just have verse 15 on your sheet. And it says, You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. The king was to be chosen by God, and he was to reign over Israel as God's representative. The king was directly responsible to God, and the people are responsible to God through the king. You see how important it is for the king to be godly. The king, he was to um, follow and be obedient to God's written law, as well as God's declared law through the words of the prophet. We said that the prophet speaks the words of God. And so this is why the prophets arise at the same time as the monarchy is established. A king is not a bad thing, but it is not God's timing. It's not God's plan just yet. Samuel's faithfulness and his spiritual leadership results in blessing for Israel. They have no reason to ask for a king now. Yet Israel did not want to wait on God's timing, and so he gives them a king. Sometimes God giving us what we demand is a punishment. Warren Wiersbe says it like this, The greatest judgment God can give us is to let us have our own way. I think that's another treasure that we find here. Ladies, Let's not demand our own way from God. Instead, wait on his perfect timing. So let's take a quick look now at chapter 9, and we are going to meet Saul. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of all of these people, and he was a Benjaminite, a man of wealth, and he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the other people. So we see that Saul's father is wealthy, and he's from the tribe of Benjamin. And so Saul is from the tribe of Benjamin. little warning light might be going on for you there. And we see that um, the first description of Saul is physical. He is handsome. He is the best-looking man around, and he's very, very tall. But what about his heart? That is what really matters. So let's go on, continue reading verse 3. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. And so Kish said to Saul, his son, Take one of the young men with you, and arise, go, and look for the donkeys. 
And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and then through all these other places. Look down at verse 5. And when they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. So we see a couple things, some admirable qualities in Saul. We see that he's obedient. He does what his father asks, and he's persistent in it. He looks hard and searches for three days um, in all these different places. And he, uh, so he's persistent. He puts in effort, hard working, uh, and he cares about his father. He cares about his feelings. He is um, considerate. He doesn't want to worry his dad. Obviously, this was before cell phones and 360, whatever that app is, where we can track our kids. So that's a little humor, people. So anyway, (laughs) he says to his servant, let's go back. But his servant has a plan because he knows of Samuel. He's heard of Samuel. So let's look at verse 6. And you might want to consider for a moment, why does Saul not know anything about Samuel, the godly leader of Israel. Verse 6 says, "Uh, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there, and perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. So they begin to talk about what they can give this man of God once they go there. And then verse 10 says, And Saul said to his servant, Well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. You know, I think this is another good quality. Saul is a listener. He listens to his servant, and then he agrees to his plan. And then verse 14 says, So they went up to the city, probably the city of Ramah. That's where Samuel lives. And as they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow, about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people, because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people." That word there, restrain, means to rule, rule his people. So we see here that God has already told Samuel um, about Saul. He says, I'm sending you the one that you will anoint, anoint as king over my people. And did you notice there that God calls Israel my people four times? And I think we can learn something about God, God's heart in these verses. First, and here's some treasure God sees them. He also sees us. We all want to be seen. It kind of reminds me of my granddaughter, Finley. She, um, a few months ago, she was starting sixth grade. It was a hard transition. I think she felt a little bit left out. And one day she was kind of moaning to me, and she said, Grammy, I'm just invisible. I'm invisible. No one sees me. God sees you, ladies. He sees you. We see it right here. He sees Israel. And we also see, number two, he cares about them. He hears their cry. He sees us and he hears us. He's concerned for us. He loves us. He knows our circumstances just like he knew Israel's. And he has a sovereign plan for each one of us. 
just like he has a sovereign plan to protect Israel from their enemies through Saul. Some great treasure there for each of us. Now, he's choosing Saul, but this does not mean that Saul satisfied God's ultimate requirements for a king, but only that he was graciously letting Israel have their own way. He's letting Israel have their own way. So let's see what um, Saul's response is. Look at verse 18. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate, and he said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? And Samuel answered Saul and says, I am the seer. That word seer means prophet. Go up and before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me. And in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. And that number one thing on his mind, as for your donkeys, they were lost three days ago. Do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And, drum roll, here is the big announcement. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Saul answered, am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? So Samuel tells him, hey, your donkeys are okay. And then he gives him this giant announcement. God is going to anoint you as king over Israel. Now, those words are kind of confusing to us, but Saul would have understood what Samuel was saying. And he is shocked. He's astounded, and his response shows humility on his, his part. He says, I am the least of the least. What is going on? Humility, that is a good quality for a king. So Samuel takes Saul to this dinner. He's the guest of honor. There's about 30 people there. They give Saul this special piece of meat, which also signifies that he is special and the guest of honor. And then that night, he goes back to Samuel's home, sleeps on the roof, and the next morning, Samuel wakes him up. Look down at verse 26. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, up, that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. And as they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to pass on before us. And when he has passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. So Samuel explains to Saul what God has said. And what we see in Saul in this chapter is admirable. These are good qualities for a king. This is a promising beginning, but we still haven't seen anything that tells us that Saul has a heart for God. And so we're going to keep looking that in the weeks ahead. But we will see in the book of 1 Samuel that God uses all people, loyal and rebellious, to produce his ultimate purposes. However, it's our attitudes our responses to him that determine the outcome of our lives. It's our response to God's grace that determines the outcome of our lives. God's plan, God's story includes the whole world. We're all, our stories are part of his story. Whether you believe in God or not, whether you're rebellious or not, whether you're loyal and follow him or whether you don't care anything about him, all our stories are in God's great story. He is sovereign. He is over all the world. His great story of grace and love and salvation. 
You know, sometimes we kind of get that the other way around. We tend to think about ourselves, and we think, here's my plan, and I want God to be a part of it. We think, that's good. I want God to be a part of it. But really, it's the other way. We should want to be in God's plan, part of his plan, cooperating with him, participating in him, sharing in his joy. And so how do we do that? How do we become um, a participant in God's plan for each of us? Well, one, look for God in 1 Samuel. His heart, his character, who he is, what he's doing, what he cares about. Look for God and you will grow in your knowledge of God by looking for him, by experiencing him in 1 Samuel. Second, recognize that your story is in the midst of God's story. Change your perspective if you need to. You are in the middle of God's great story. And how do we participate with him in his plan? Walk with the Lord with all your heart, wholeheartedly trusting in his perfect plan for you. Ladies, come back next week and every week as we study 1 Samuel. Look for treasure. You will find it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so good. We love you, Lord. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for your word that we can see you and know you. Father, that we can know ourselves, that we can learn how to walk with you wholeheartedly. Father, that we might know the plans that you have for us, plans for our welfare, not for evil, but plans to give us a future and a hope. Lord, open our eyes and our hearts and our ears that we might learn great things, that we might find great treasure in this book of 1 Samuel. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.